Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. It's Mike again. Hello. Oh, Mr. Kevin, thank you. Um, so we are, as we've talked about now ad nauseum, uh, starting a conversation about this thing. What is it? How do we understand it? It is both simultaneously the greatest source of inspiration and encouragement and um, a, the cause of a great many doubt and struggle for people. And, um, and so we just want to have kind of a, a, a kind of a meta conversation about it. How does the Bible talk about itself? We're calling the series Unbound. What that means is um, we want to disconnect the Bible from all of our assumptions about the Bible and just listen to what it itself says, particularly as it talks about itself and about what its purposes are in the world. And so um, a, couple of, a couple of disclaimers. Number one, um, we're going to do Q&A, and that's why, that's why we're going to end the service just with a bunch of information and then questions and answers. I want you to hold your questions, if you would, though, till we get through the bulk of the material. Uh, if you want to text your questions, go ahead and text them to this number, right? Memorize it, study it, um, and then we'll address them. And for those of you that are very, very social, uh, and want to talk in the room, uh, Mr. Kevin Dixon will have a microphone. We'd love for you, if you would, um, at, towards the end of our content, uh, if you would raise your hand, if you would wait till you get the microphone, and please don't take it. Okay, we don't trust you. Um, and so you're just going to get Kevin holding it, all right? Um, and we'd love for you to be brief, but we want the online folks to be able to hear this. All right, lastly, and this is so important, we're going to dive into some really complicated stuff. And because you have been voted um, the most intelligent church um, in the Middle Tennessee area, we want to let you know there are all sorts of ways we're going to continue these conversations. Number one, at the 11 o'clock service, that guy right there, Kevin Dixon, is going to uh, continue a conversation like we did on the Sermon on the Mount series. If you go out the doors and down to the left, there's an overflow room. We're going to be sitting there and talking about what it is that um, we've just been talking about. And so if you're interested in that, that's fantastic. Secondly, some of you are readers. For those of you that are younger, readers, like there, there are books that exist that, that they're physical and they have paper and they have little words printed on them. And... Um, just teasing, and there is a whole book table of resources that we recommend. You can go check those out. Those are not for sale, but they're intended to sort of stimulate you to purchase these and read these on your own. Also, that guy Kevin, Kevin's going to teach a class twice after the second week and the fourth week of the series about, okay, let's say I open my Bible to the book of Philippians, now what? What do I do? Where do I go? So all of those very practical, like what's a commentary and what's a Bible dictionary and all of that stuff, that's where we'll be covering that. All right? Makes sense so far? Fantastic. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we need to be talking about. Okay, plan for... Oh, by the way, thank you. I, um, 
I have a great gift of taking July away from doing weekly sermons to prep for what's coming in the fall. So what we're going to do is we're going to do this Bible series, and we're going to learn a bunch of things about how to approach the Bible, and then we're going to apply all of that Bible stuff to one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible, the book of Revelation. All right, so we're going straight from what is the Bible and how you understand it to, well, here's a book of the Bible. How do we understand this? And interestingly, Apache helicopters are not mentioned. I, I, know, I don't know if that's heartbreaking to anybody, but it's not there. Neither is Saddam Hussein. So, I mean, it's kind of a bummer. But we sold a lot of books back in the day. It's fantastic. Now, anyway, that's our fall, all right? It's going to be glorious. Now, for the next 25 minutes, you are going to be bombarded with information, all right? I'm stealing a lot of this information on this particular uh, teaching from Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. They just do, if you're new to the Bible or have questions, go to their website. They are just amazing, amazing. Um, but Tim does some stuff on the origin of the Bible and how the Bible talks about itself. And so I'm borrowing from that. Um, and uh, so we're going to go through a whole bunch of slides, all right? Sarah is running slides today, so just warm up your fingers, Sarah. Here we go. When I was growing up, the view of the Bible I received was something called, I would call it the golden tablets falling from heaven perfectly view of the Bible. It was like God, like it fell down, it fell down perfect in its like entirety and there was no evolution to it, there was no human involvement in it, God just sort of dictated and overrode everybody's personality and here it was, it just kind of fell from heaven perfectly. What I want to argue uh, over the course of the next several weeks is that that's one of the lowest views of the Bible that you can have, because it ignores what the Bible says about itself. Now, if you're nervous, because, oh man, here it comes, he's a liberal, we all know it, we knew it, we knew it, knew it, no one, no one can be that handsome and really love Jesus. I got it, I get your skepticism. Um, but I, I have... It, I mean, the Bible is inspired, it's the word of God, it's all the things you and I would agree with, but how it's those things is what's really interesting. I think the Bible causes a lot of unnecessary misunderstanding with people because we've not ever been taught how to approach this. The Bible is an ancient library of books that represent the culmination of divine and human effort in the world. It's what the Bible is, and it has a very specific goal that we're going to talk about later. All right, so let's talk about how the Bible talks about itself, all right? Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, I know. I'm sick of hearing about it. All right, look at the, I got notes today, ladies and gentlemen. All right, so the first mention we get of how the Bible came together comes in the book of Exodus. Fire it up, Sarah. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at that city. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men, go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now this is the very famous, right? Moses, as long as his hands were up, we're winning. If his hands were falling, we're losing. That's that, that's that battle. Then it says, Then the Lord says to Moses, and notice these very specific instructions, Write this on a scroll as something to remember. Sounds pretty mundane, correct? Right? Right? Yeah. Hey, God said, write this down. 
Okay, well, that's the first mention of how the Bible talks about how it came together. God did something. God said to Moses, write this down. And what did Moses do? He wrote it down. Very profound, I know. Exodus 24, the second mention of how the Bible comes together. The Lord said to Moses, come up to Israel, you Aaron, and then those two guys, and 70 elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach with the Lord. The others must not come near. And all people may not come up with him, and, all, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down what? Right, does it sound like God overrode Moses' personality? From that? No. That God was dictating or something? No. Hey, this thing happened, Moses write it down. There are times in the prophets where the authors name their sources, and they're referring to other books we don't have. So here is Numbers 21. They set out from there and camped alongside the Arnon, which is the wilderness extending into Moabite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites, as you guys know. This is why, and then what's the book called? The Book of the Wars of the Lord. Now, do we have that book? No. But it quotes from some book called the Book of the Wars of the Lord. Or, in Joshua, we hear about the book of Jashar. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of that. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in... Do we have that book? We most certainly do not. Or in 1 Kings, and you see this a ton when you're slogging through Kings... The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. Do we have that one? Nope. Verse 29. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? We don't have that book either. Sometimes we get, the, the text will talk about how it was edited. All right, so... Here's this long passage in Jeremiah where there was a guy named Baruch. Baruch was a professional scribe, all right? Baruch, well, I'll just read the text. Verse 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So this is a word to Jeremiah. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel. Judah and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you to the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will t turn from their wicked ways and they will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Verse 4, so Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on a scroll. All right, so God says, hey, Jeremiah, Write down what I've just told you. Jeremiah calls Baruch, and Baruch writes them down. Makes sense so far? The problem is the evil king gets a hold of that scroll and burns it. So then, in verse 32, it says, Jeremiah took another scroll 
and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah, as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And then notice, and many similar words were added to them. So have you ever had a professor that burns your rough draft to the, to the ground and you have to start over? I think that's funny. I have. And I'm sure Baruch was feeling the very same way. He wrote, Jeremiah, that what God had said to Jeremiah was very unflattering about the king. The king gets a hold of draft one, burns it. So they sit down and they write draft two. And it says that he added a bunch of stuff to draft two. Or think about how Proverbs came together. All right? They identify where the Proverbs are coming from. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So we have some Proverbs from Solomon. Here in, verse, uh, in chapter 22, 30 sayings of the wise ones. We don't know who those people were. Proverbs 25, these are more Proverbs of Solomon. Sweet, next. The sayings of Argur, son of Jaca, an inspired utterance. So now we've got Argur. And then this is, my fa- this is my favorite. The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. And that is in your sacred word of God. And all the moms went, yeah, yeah, my kids should freaking listen more to what I'm saying. They'd be better off. And we all say, amen. There are other times in the Old Testament where the writers have visions. And they, uh, they see things up in the heavens. And so you have in Isaiah 66... Um, oh, no, this was just 6. My bad. It's not Isaiah 66. It's just Isaiah 6. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah begins to just tell us what he saw in his vision. Or in Ezekiel, my 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day. That's how I do my day planner. I just use that dating method. It's fantastic. It sounds so much more formal. While I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were open and I saw a vision of God. Now, just pause for a second. So how did the Old Testament come together? What does it mean for it to be inspired? Well, what are the examples we just read? God said, hey, write this down, and they what? Right? Sometimes they saw visions of of things that were happening in the heavens, and they wrote those down to try to capture what it is that they were seeing. Other times, there were other written collections of oral history, and that they would quote from those. And someone's mom said something so profound, they're like, we got to put it in there. Right? When you get to the New Testament, it's the same dynamic between human participation and divine agency. Right? So Jesus inaugurates a whole new covenant community, and then he deputizes his apostles to write down his teaching. Verse uh, 18 of Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and what? Teaching them to obey everything I taught you. So what are the gospel accounts? The records of the things that Jesus taught and did, correct? Or Luke, this one's fascinating. Luke is writing to his patron, a guy named Theophilus. All right, Luke and Acts, both written by Luke, are like Luke's report to Theophilus 
about whether or not Christianity is true. Theophilus has heard some things about Christianity but was uncertain about its truthfulness, so Luke put together an historical account. So notice, this is the beginning of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So there were lots of people writing stuff down. Just as they, the stuff that happened, just as the records of those were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So what's the claim? The claim was there were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. They put together accounts and then those filtered around. With this in mind, verse 3, since I myself have carefully, and what's the word? Investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So what's inspiration mean here? A guy had a bunch of questions, and so Luke said, hey, lots of people have tried to put stuff together, but I'm going to do it in an orderly account. And there's some fascinating scholarship that whenever Luke names somebody in the Gospel of Luke, that represents somebody he's talked with. So what you're getting there is just the records from the eyewitnesses of what it is that Jesus said and what he did. In John, notice how John talks about this, the end of John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are what? They're not in here. Which means that the author selected certain things and left other things out, correct? But these are written that you might believe and something. Oh, there it is. You might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. Now, I know this is a slog and it's a lot of information. Point is coming. Five more minutes of slides, all right? This is awesome. John, look at the screen. Look at the screen. So when we get the epistles, I'm missing a page here. Where is page four? Oh, John. John just said, look at the screen. All right. Security. Um, second row. So then you get into the epistles. And how were the epistles written? Well, very often, they would be dictated by somebody and written down by somebody else. So notice, Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then he writes Romans, but then notice at the end of Romans, I, Tertius, wrote down this letter. I greet you in the Lord. All right? Or First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's the author, but with the help of Silas, I have written to you briefly. Or uh, in 2 Peter, Peter will say, notice, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So how did Paul write? How did he write? With what? The wisdom God gave him. But notice, this is genius, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking uh, in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are what? And can we all say, amen? Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now notice, Peter categorizes Paul's writings as what? 
the other scriptures, right? He uses scripture to describe Paul's writings, but he also says the wisdom that God's given Paul, well, Paul writes it down in ways that are sometimes hard to understand. Isn't that interesting? Or, man, this is really juicy. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul here distinguishes between the stuff he learned from Jesus and the stuff he doesn't hasn't learned from Jesus. And so, to the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. Okay, so what's Paul saying? I received a direct command from Jesus and I'm repeating it to you. All right? A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, and then notice the parenthesis, I, not the Lord, Do you see what he's doing there? I don't have a direct command from Jesus on this. So as an apostle, I'm going to speak and give wisdom into this situation. Are you with me on this point? What's fascinating is that Paul doesn't feel free to invent sayings of Jesus, but rather distinguishes between Jesus' words and his. Or verse 25, now about virgins, and that's always an incredible way to start a sentence. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Or in Galatians, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of what? It's not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, rather I received it by what? Revelation from Jesus Christ. And then at the end, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? I mean, isn't that interesting? You have a picture of divine providence and a picture of Paul saying, dude, look at the large letters I'm using. It's just fascinating to me. Or in Colossians, after this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the church from Laodicea. Do we have a letter from the Laodiceans in our New Testaments? No, but there was one. Huh. All right, can you do a couple more? We're not even in questions yet. I'm sure you have none. First Thessalonians. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people but God. And then notice verse 13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Or uh, like in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul will quote authoritative tradition that he received from the other apostles. So whenever he says, for I received from the Lord, I passed on to you, that is, a tra- that is like a technical rabbinical way of saying, I'm giving you authoritative tradition, and then he talks about communion. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, he does the same thing when he talks about the resurrection. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, and he talks about the resurrection. Or notice what Peter says in 2 Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised stories but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then lastly, finally, the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And then John proceeds to write down what he saw. 
There it is. We're done. Let's close in prayer. So, I believe the Bible's inspired. But what does it mean to say the Bible's inspired? Well, in one text it means that God said, write this down, and they wrote it down. In another couple of texts, it means they quoted from another book. On another group of texts, there were stages and edits as it progressed because the first draft was burned. Um, In some texts, it's about, man, these authoritative sayings came from Solomon, and then there was one here that came from someone's mom. At times, they received visions that they would write down. Jesus commissioned his disciples to just go around and say, hey, all the stuff I told you, just tell that to other people. Right? Luke, Luke for inspiration for Luke meant he did research and interviewed people. For John, it meant that there were a whole bunch of other things he could have put in the book, but he had an agenda for the book, and he only included certain things. Inspiration meant that, that they would use people to help them write. Inspiration meant that they were sure that what they were seeing was not of human origin or just another tradition, but was from God. But then they'll sign it by, look at the letters I'm using, how large they are. Right? That's what the picture we get of inspiration. And this is a point that Tim Mackey makes. Go ahead and put up that diagram. If you want to know what it means that the Bible is inspired, this is what it is. This is a, a drawing from M.C. Escher, and it's two hands drawing the other, correct? This is what inspiration is. There is a divine part and a human part. And because there is a divine part, we use words like authority and inspiration. But because there's a human part, we use words like context and genre, right? And you can't erase either without misunderstanding what the Bible is and does. The Bible is a record of human and divine partnership. Look at me. So it's not surprising that the record of a human-divine partnership would itself be a human and divine partnership. Correct? The picture we get of God in the very first pages of the Bible is of a God who wants human beings to participate. In the same way that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, and you can't erase one of those without distorting the other. The scriptures come to us as a divine word and a human word, both at the same time. That diagram is just intended to capture the fact that there is a divine agency that sits behind the text, and that's why we hold it as an authority. But there's also a human backstory to the text, and we should not be surprised or threatened by that because God has always used human backstories to do his work. Does this make sense so far? Okay, I got nothing from you guys on that. Nothing. Like a wall of boredom. A couple other points and then let the questions flow. And if you think this is bad, wait till next week. Oh my goodness, we're going to get into some crazy stuff. But it's not bad stuff, it's just the way the Bible talks about itself. And it's the stuff that it just fell perfectly from the sky doesn't capture Right? The Bible talks about itself as a divine word, absolutely. But it has a human backstory, and I can't tell you how much money certain scholars have made by exposing Christians to the backstory and saying, oh my goodness, there are textual variants. Oh my goodness, there is a tradition history. Oh my goodness, one scribe one day didn't like that a woman was mentioned and changed it to a masculine name. 
And all of a sudden, Christians are like, well, if the whole thing isn't exactly golden tablets fell from heaven, then I guess I can't believe any of it. And that's not true. The Bible comes to us as the product of a divine and human partnership. And so, because of the divine aspect, we use words like authority and inspiration. But because of the human aspect, we look about, we study language and context and culture. Because there's a big assumption you and I carry that we've totally missed when it comes to the Bible. We assume that if God does something, humans aren't involved. And if humans do something, God's not involved. But that's just not the Bible. That's just not the story of the Bible. Why, why is it that God has Moses hold his hands up in the middle of a battle? Could God not have won the battle by himself? Of course. So what's Moses doing? What's he doing? Absolutely. And that impulse to participate is throughout the whole story. So the record of the story is similarly an invitation to participate. Let me make sure I got it all out. N.T. Wright. Let's close with N.T. Wright. Inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended the people to have. In other words, what he's saying is really profound. I don't trust the Bible because of the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust God to reveal himself in ways that produce the kind of response he wants. All right, Kevin, I'm assuming we've got some questions. I, yes, there's a few. Yeah. Uh, before I ask some of the questions, can I get a future thought out of your brain? Are you planning on talking about how the canon was put together at any point? In terms of the councils? Yes. Maybe. How about how the, just in the general outline of how they chose the books? We'll get to that a little bit. Okay, because some of the questions were around Yeah, that. So, so some of the questions will be, hey, we'll talk about that later. Okay. So what do you do? And if you have any questions in the room, raise your hand. Wait, don't take the mic. Okay, perfect. So, yeah, take my mic. What do you do with the scriptures that is borrowed from other cultures, such as Gilgamesh? Oh, yeah, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. Well, That's the question. What do you do with them? Okay, so in Genesis 1, um, there are a whole bunch of ancient Near Eastern creation stories. And they share some things in common with Genesis 1. Like there are flood stories throughout almost every Mesopotamian culture. Um, there are seven-day stories, creation in seven days, that are um, referenced in other cultures. And so there's a big debate in scholarship. Well, did Genesis borrow from those, or did those, did those things borrow from Genesis? And the answer, of course, is that God, not of course, but God uses culturally bound people in their language and their cultural assumptions to communicate his eternal sort of vision for the community of faith. And I have no doubt that there's interplay between some of the other stories and what Genesis says. But what's fascinating, guys, and we'll look at this. We're thinking about doing a series on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 next summer or next uh, year. 
And what's fascinating is that in Genesis, it's not how the, how the accounts are the same that is the big deal, it's how the accounts are different. The writer, and I can't go into it, but the writer so brilliantly subverts the other narratives. Um, and so it, it would be like me using presidential language to describe Jesus. Revelation does this all the time. You'll, we'll actually read hymns that were sung to Jesus of Nazareth that were actually sung to the emperor at the time, Domitian. And you'll realize, wh- what are they doing? They're saying, hey, there is a throne at the center of the universe, and Caesar is not on it. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so there is no doubt, there's tons of interplay between the culture of the time and the biblical record. Absolutely. Just like there would be today. We would all use, if, if the Bible were being written today, we would all use... English pictures and metaphors and conversations to present the story of Jesus. But more about that. This, this speaks later. a little bit to what you just uh, previously talked about. So when the Bible has, says the Lord says, like in the prophets, yes, is that a verbatim quote or is that still being filtered through the view of the prophets themselves? And then he adds this, was God really that angry or was some of the frustration of the anger of the prophets added into the language as they wrote? Oh, good Lord. Uh, that's next week. Oh, that's next week. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, if, but if I don't answer that specifically, oh, it's so tempting. I can't. It's next okay. week. So that's just a teaser. Oh, I got one right here. Hey, hey, hey. All right, so... Um, the, how do we address the, there's the common argument that the Bible contradicts itself, right? So, um, you know, we got the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not murder, but then we've got tons of killing, you know, in, in, right. in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and at times it says, well, there's a time to kill, you know? Right, right, right. So that, com- and you might have a whole sermon coming on this, I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's next week. Okay. But take, but take polygamy. We're going to look at polygamy next week. On page one, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And then on page three, here we have someone with multiple wives. And then God gives a command in Exodus about if you're married to multiple wives, make sure you take care of your previous wife before you marry another one. So what's he doing there? And then Jesus says about divorce, hey, God gave you a command in the Old Testament because your hearts were hard. So what's he doing there? And the answer, as it turns out, is that the Bible isn't the record of God's perfect will. The Bible is triage for fallen humanity. And every time humanity dips lower, God triages. So it's really, it's a really profound concept. So when we're reading like, And this leads directly into the answer to your question. The Bible records so many things that it doesn't approve of. Why? Because it's a record of divine human partnership. And guess what? Humans are jacked. So the worst thing you can do, and this is a problem with the Golden Tablets view, is that you read every word as if this is what God wanted from the beginning. There was no command not to murder in the garden right? The command to not murder came after the human started murdering. So this is what we're going to talk about next week. Oh, it's juicy. So here's another question for you. Um, so did the Spirit of God hover over the men who recorded the scriptures 
and thus supersede their potentially corruptible contributions to the text, rendering it what we would say is infallible. Right. Would a literal interpretation then be the only possible conclusion if that was true? Oh man, okay. Boy, that, a longer answer is coming in a couple of weeks. I, I figured think. we were gonna talk about that. Yeah, we're gonna talk about literal. Because, yeah. because literal is actually, unless the text tells you to take it literally, literal is the worst way to take the text. How do you take poetry literally? When I, when I say two roads diverged in a yellow wood, is there like, are there literally two roads I'm looking for or is that a picture of something? So we're talking about the idea that the Bible is a Barnes and Noble bookstore. And when you go into Barnes and Noble, they have different sections and those section headings, like here's fiction, here's nonfiction, tell you how to read the books that you'll find there. We approach the Bible like it's just one book between two you know, two covers, and it's to be read all of the same way, and we do so much damage there. So yeah, we're gonna explore that a lot. Yes, sir, hold on, Kevin. Look at this, like a gazelle, right there, young man. I know you mentioned like how we, the inspiration and how we interpret it changes through culturally, and as we continue to grow as a society and as a culture, are we continuing to change our view even though it's not written? I'm not saying we're continuing writing more, but yeah. our views have changed and they might not be exactly what's written, so are we, are we continuing to write is what I'm asking. Yeah, 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 great question. Um, so, the, so the idea is that there are two ways to approach the text. One is something called exegesis, which is you're doing all of the hard work to figure out what it meant to the original audience. And there's another one called eisegesis, which is where you bring 21st century American assumptions to the text, and then you stand over the text and judge it because it's ancient. So I can't believe a barbaric text would say this when American culture says this over here. I'm a big fan of the, the exegesis view, where before we talk about at all what it means to us, we are doing the hard work to figure out how they would have heard it, and we start there. So the answer is sometimes culture will lead the church, right? And culture will remind us that there is this, oh, there's this massive conversation about justice and ethnic reconciliation that's at the heart of the New Testament. There are other times culture will wander in ways we just can't follow. And so the art that we're gonna talk about more is how do you know when is when? Right, whether it's sexuality and gender, whether it's women in ministry, right, whether it's all the big controversial topics, abortion or whatever, when you've got American culture saying this and it seems so obvious to us, and this ancient book saying this over here, are we fools to just sit under the ancient book that didn't even have some of that vocabulary and concepts in the minds of its original writers? So yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna spend some time. And I know that doesn't answer it yet, I'm just, honoring your question and saying that's really good. Y yes, sir? Kevin, Tim, you got nothing. Sorry, Tim. All right, so my question <laughs> is, I know you mentioned that you know, the Bible was created because of the divine intervention of, or the divine and human partnership. participation, the partnership. Because that hasn't stopped, when did the point come when they're like, you know what, guys, we got enough here. Let's call it. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. When did yeah. that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
the, the process really heightened when the eyewitnesses started dying off. So when the eyewitnesses started dying off, there was a second generation of disciples who began to collect something called a corpus, which was a, a gathering of writings. So Paul's letters began to travel together, or John's letters began to travel together. And the earliest churches used two ways of, of arguing, and there was dis disagreement over this, absolutely, but two ways of saying if something was authoritative or not for the community. A, was it written by an eyewitness or a designated representative of an eyewitness? And B, does it already jive with the stuff we've received from as tradition? Using those two tests, by the time you get to the official councils that we all are skeptical of, they were just ratifying groups of letters that were already floating around. Now there was dispute over Revelation and Jude and some of the other ones. And some of that was because of the really kind of fantastical nature of them and that later Greeks were not super familiar with Jewish apocalyptic writings. And so there was a lot of confusion about what exactly Revelation was. So that was the reason for so much debate. Does that help? I mean, there's much, much more to say. That's a great question, though. Hey, we'll do maybe five more minutes and we're out, all right? Do you see why we're not going to do communion and worship right now? Because we just want to... Now, now... Big disclaimer, I am no expert. I read people a lot smarter than me, which is like almost everybody, starting with Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Hold on. The goal is, is to make the Bible weird again so that we will approach it with fresh ears. The worst thing that happens in the people of God is like, oh yeah, I've heard a sermon on that, I got it. Because we're all cognitive people and we just think, oh, all the Bible is is a bunch of cognitive information. No, no, no. Let me tell you, and this is one of the biggest points we'll make. The goal of the Bible is not to save your individual soul, but to produce a certain kind of community. The Bible was written to Israel and to the church, not to you. And so, how do you know when good interpretations are happening? Well, the Bible says very simply, it's by the fruit of the community you will know. So the goal of the Bible is not to produce a bunch of individual believers going to heaven. The goal of the Bible is to create a community. These are community charters, all right? And when we get into that, now we're cooking, right? Yes? So this is probably a question for next week, but um, I grew up in like probably most of us, the golden tablet mentality. Yeah. Um, and over time, as I've learned more about how the Bible is put together, it's really just come alive for me. Mm. And I mm. have family and friends who, when I start talking about that, you know, start to, you know, write me off. They get nervous. Yeah, for sure. Like, what, what is he becoming? Um, how can I invite them into seeing that beauty and experiencing something beyond just a literalist interpretation? Right. Now remember. He's going to say, that's coming in the weeks to come. <laughs> well, no, no. Well, yes. Thank you, Kevin. You should just say that to every... But remember, literalist isn't bad when the text says, take this literally. So... Should we take the text literally? Yeah, where it says to be taken literally. But we are going to approach the text literarily because of the kind of literature 
that we're reading, there are different assumptions that you make going into it. When you're reading Song of Songs, that's different than 1 Samuel. And if you've never read Song of Songs, get your parents' permission first. Okay? Great question. And how do we... Because here's, here, here, here's the thing I hope at the end of however many weeks we come to the conclusion of. That a flat reading of the Bible which claims to be the highest view of the Bible is actually one of the lowest views of the Bible. Because you're not letting the text speak. See, we have to encounter the Jesus who comes to us, not the Jesus we want, correct? Same thing is true with the Bible. So many people are shipwrecked because we've not just simply said, hey, there were human authors. Okay, and, and in their humanness, There are corrections and false steps and missteps. Well, then how can we say it's still authoritative? And that is where we're going to start exploring. Because it is. Absolutely. I trust it. I've given my life to the study of it. And like this young man has said, knowing this stuff only makes it richer for me. But I realize there are some that are like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where this is going, I don't know where this is going, this feels liberal, I got it, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Please just listen to the whole conversation before you render that judgment. Because I, I think there's a way of knowing the Bible that is infinitely richer than just, yep, God, the Bible says it, God, it settles it, I believe it, end of story. Okay, what about when, he, when, when in the psalmist it talks about dashing infants onto the rocks? The Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it. That's not an approach to the Bible that does justice to the Bible, right? So we just want to cultivate. And how we invite people into that is very gently, respectfully, prayerfully. Um, I always love inviting people to read things and then, and then going to lunch after and talking about what it is we're reading, so there are some books out there that could be good starter conversations where you're not, become, you're not standing over somebody saying, hey, you're not as cool as I am, so you really need to think how I think. Because that never goes over well with family. I don't know, I've, I've tried it, and it doesn't really, doesn't really work. Yeah, that's a struggle. You want to close it? No, I wanted to just affirm what you just said. I want, oh. Um, this is not to make the Bible scary or to steal anything from anybody. This is an attempt to invite you into how we were both trained how to study the Bible. That's right. We were both trained this way, both trained in very specific ways on how to approach teaching. And, and a lot of times you just don't get to look behind the curtain. You don't get a chance to peek and see. And what this is, is an opportunity for you to study in a way that the, the things that are revealed when we teach you can reveal yourself. Yeah. And that's what that's we want word. to invite you. And we want you to have a rich, full relationship with God. And, that, and to have that in this community is to understand really how to engage yeah. the Bible. That's it. So That's a good word, man. And, yeah. and, and for those of us who are a bit older, like Kevin and myself. I am nine years old. Our kids. Yeah. No, no. But our kids are being shipwrecked because, of, because we've not taught them about this stuff. You know, the golden tablet view doesn't hold up to an internet culture. And so we, we just have to revisit the conversation. So stand up if you would. You made it. Kids, you made it. Kids. Kids.
They remain unimpressed, perpetually. All right. And pets. Is that a pet over there? A service dog. Fantastic. All are welcome at the table. All right. Listen, y'all. I've missed this, and I'm so grateful. Um, we have podcasts coming out. Kevin is doing his class, books on the table. Kevin is doing discussion conversations next. It's going to be glorious. We want to make the Bible weird again, so we listen to what it actually says. All right? The goal is that we would become a more Jesus-like community. That's the goal of this. The goal isn't that we have the right view of the Bible. That's irrelevant. The goal is that we become a certain kind of community. And having a view of the Bible that produces that kind of community is what we're after. So, close your eyes. I'm doing a blessing, and we're out of here. Next week, we'll do the same thing. Come prepared to take communion early, and then this. Maybe we'll see you in September if you decide this is just way too many slides. I don't know, but may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, and in these days, may he give his peace.